Welcome to The Green Docs. This is a podcast that talks about the latest in women's and family health and how these are impacted by the environment. Here's everything your OB probably isn't telling you, but should be. Maybe one of your New Year's resolutions was to get a gym membership, even go there in person on occasion. But new research highlights yet another benefit of exercise. It can help restore and improve your gut microbiome, potentially lowering the risk of GI disorders, obesity, and even cancer. And are you having trouble getting your kids to eat vegetables? New research offers help for parents of picky eaters. Introducing foods during an infant's flavor window, roughly 14 to 18 months, can overcome aversions to broccoli, asparagus, and have lifelong benefit. And in today's installment of Bears Behaving Badly, a giant panda fakes pregnancy to get air conditioning and better food. Can you blame her? I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Edison DeMello, who's the founder and chief medical officer of the Akasha Center for Integrative Medicine in Santa Monica, California. We're going to be talking to him about the gut microbiome, whether there is one in the vagina, and how his multimodal approach to healthcare influences the treatment of women and families. I'm Bruce Picard. I'm a San Diego OBGYN now in the third phase of my career, where I work mostly with nonprofits, speaking to medical audiences and the public about the health risks of climate change and the amazing benefits of this clean energy revolution that's going on. And I'm Nate DiNicola, the environmental health expert for our national and international OBGYN societies, as well as a private practice physician and chief medical officer. All right, Bruce, we are here in February, halfway through uh, the second month, 2024 is flying by. What's going on with you? What's new? Well, I had the guys over for the usual Super Bowl party in which they're all doctors. None of us really care that much about football or ever played it. But we pretend to watch the game and mostly we eat too much food and watch the commercials. What was your favorite Super Bowl commercial this year? I did not watch a single Super Bowl commercial. Uh, I actually didn't watch the game at all. We were at a, a good friend's 70th birthday party and it was a private event. So it was kind of all reserved to this restaurant. And she's actually a rather famous and accomplished singer. Yeah, my Super Bowl was was watching these kind of private performances of old Disney songs and getting the updates either through text messages from my college friends or just watching the scores on ESPN. Well, I know that the Chiefs won because Tay-Tay and her boyfriend were very happy, but the commercials were fabulous. There was really a great one you should watch if you haven't seen it with Dunkin' Donuts with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Tom Brady. But J-Lo stole that commercial, just the looks she gave of pure embarrassment being Affleck's partner, saying things like, we talked about this. It was just, it was great. So, okay, I did see these because, of course, it all appears on social media later on the reels and such. Yeah, I did see this and I definitely thought as at one point, like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are walking away in their, yeah, totally like decked out Dunkin' Donut suits and Matt Damon saying to Ben, you know, when I told you I'd do anything for you, this is anything. <laughs> 
I felt like that if it hasn't happened yet for our podcast, that's going to happen sometime soon. Like this is anything. <laughs> but anyway, what's going on with you? Well, we hosted our third annual Mardi Gras party here in Huntington Beach. And uh, being from New Orleans, I, I love connecting with uh, a lot of the companies that are back there. So I have King Cake from Gambino's flown in. We have uh, coffee from, in this case, Community Coffee, Mardi Gras, Blend Coffee. And we had uh, the band called Jambalaya West performing on our front porch, which I swear, like if you were to just kind of drop somebody blindfolded right in front of our house on the Mardi Gras party and you know couldn't see the ocean, didn't know where you were. Otherwise, you could believe you're in the bywater in New Orleans. The architecture of the house, the, the band, the brass instruments, it all it feels very Mardi Gras-like. You know, I was thinking that's one of the real benefits of Kindle to you is that she goes along with this New Orleans obsession of yours. She even seems to be as much a part of it as you are. You know, results would vary on who tolerates who in some cases, <laughs> because when I first saw the house, there were Florida Lees everywhere. And I guess her mom at one point had said, like, if you buy one more Florida Lee, I'm getting an intervention. But it worked out very well for me because I actually, I love that logo and symbol. I think it's just classy and cool. And it was, it was a great pairing to the very beginning. We both kind of like a lot of the same things. Wonderful. All right. So should we get into these headlines? Yeah. Did you, have you been to the gym yet this year or are you running outdoors only? I'm doing, I have a mini gym at the place that I live in and uh, I use that a fair amount, but we wanted to talk a bit about the gut microbiome because we know it's going to come up in the interview with Dr. DeMello. And it's already known widely that taking antibiotics or eating junk food really hurts the gut flora and can lead to systemic inflammation, to insulin resistance and weight gain and altered immune function. But UCLA Health noted recent research shows that both high intensity and even light exercise improve the overall health and diversity of our gut flora. And the effect seems to come from increasing blood levels of oxygen and antioxidants and also speeding the transit time of food through the intestines. It's also important to point out that in addition to exercise, you really need to clean up your diet to truly optimize your gut flora. I don't think there's any surprise that there's like just additional benefits from exercise we learn about all the time. Kind of related to this topic, my favorite teaching point from, say, gestational diabetes, uh, my favorite teaching point from residency was that if uh, women were going to exercise, it's not just that they would therefore be you know, usually eating healthier and having less glucose in their blood that needs to be absorbed, but the more you exercise, the more efficiently the body metabolizes glucose. So your insulin actually works better the more you exercise, like the receptors are more active. And so it's just like compounded benefit. And this sounds like one more example of that, where you're going to have healthier gut, which means digestive processes go well. You don't get leaky gut, which can cause things like allergic reactions, atopic dermatitis, cleaner skin, basically. Yeah. I mean, it basically sounds like just in whatever form you can, get out and exercise and it's going to make your life healthier. Yes, an old story about a new angle, and since uh, the gut microbiome is a big topic in so many areas of medicine right now, I think it's nice to know yet one more thing we can do to help boost it. How about uh, this flavor window? Would I have possibly liked broccoli or cauliflower if my mom had introduced it at the right time? If you got it five times, you would have. That seems to be the magic dose. 
this is actually not that new of research. It's been out for a little while, but kind of like the gut microbiome, the more new studies investigate it, the more and more they find that it's true and it's beneficial. So the, the basic idea here is that if you introduce new foods to infants when they're between four to 18 months, and really like six months seems to be the sweet spot, that they are more likely to be open not only to that food you gave them, say whatever vegetable is often difficult to get kids to eat, but they'll be open to other new foods as well. This study looked at kids from uh, multiple countries, including United Kingdom, Portugal, Greece, and they had parents give their children new different vegetables uh, at least five times for several months, and then compared it to other kids who didn't have that. Like they kind of just ate whatever, but it wasn't intentional to introduce new foods. After that short period of, of introduction, the kids who had been given the new foods were then much more open to a different food. In this case, it was uh, artichoke, like an artichoke puree. They ate it, whereas the kids in the other group were kind of, it was kind of hit and miss. It was more variable. Yeah, if your parents had given you that food like five times, you probably would have a lifelong openness to it. That's potentially very useful information because certainly we do want to kind of program kids as they're growing up to eat a healthy diet. And it's one of the things I've always appreciated my parents for is we didn't have a lot of junk food in the house. And I don't think I ate a lot of even ice cream as a kid growing up, not a lot of sugary things, lots and lots of fruit. And that has served me so well over the years to not crave those things. But this idea that you could actually get kids to grow up liking the taste of vegetables and other things that are really good for them means you don't have to try to force it on them later and they get potentially really lifelong help from those kind of habits. Yeah. And there's a lot of examples of this phenomenon where a little bit of work early on saves you a lot of work later. Like in medicine, they teach you this about doing your documentation. Like if you document immediately after you see the patient or immediately when the work is fresh, it takes you whatever, 10 minutes. If you wait until later on the day, it takes you 15 minutes. If you wait until the whole week after, it takes you like 30 minutes. If you introduce the foods to the children when they're roughly six months old, you only need five times, that's what the studies show, to kind of get them open to it. If you wait until they're three to four years old, you have to do it 15 times. So <laughs> maybe that sounds like not such a big number, but you know, if you're trying to get that kid to eat asparagus or whatever it is, five versus 15 is a pretty big difference. I think it's pretty interesting for parents who are looking to, yeah, to kind of just save themselves some effort later on. Yeah, and make their kids much more likely to be healthy because as we keep coming back to, diet is such a huge influence on uh, health outcomes and preventing disease. So that's that's really fabulous. Yeah. And then on the flip side, kind of like you were mentioning, this is why pediatricians will tell basically anybody who will listen, like their patients, their colleagues, their friends, don't introduce juice to kids. Like that picture of a healthy breakfast used to have a orange juice there. And they say, just don't do it. Because just like introducing vegetables can make a lifetime of uh, interest or openness to them, introducing sugar early can do the same thing, can get them basically on the pathway to being very interested and or addicted to it. Now, sugar as a flavor we like is going to be there no matter what. Like you can't, you can't avoid that, but you can keep it in check and not have it kind of on accelerated pathway by uh, giving it to them very early. Yeah. Speaking of dietary preferences. <laughs> is this uh, the panda story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This out of Sichuan province in China, a captive six-year-old panda by the name of Ai Hin, which I'm guessing might translate to gotcha, showed behavioral changes consistent with pregnancy starting last July, reduced mobility and appetite, 
maybe frequently surfing the web for panda car seats, which got her a private room with air conditioning, more fruits, buns, and bamboo. I mean, who doesn't want that? Well, it's a whole new meaning to Munchausen syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Now you have to define that if people haven't heard of it. Munching away at the bamboo. Yeah, Munchausen is uh, basically a faking a medical condition to get some secondary gain, usually like sympathy or just more attention. In this case, uh, Munchausen for the panda would be faking pregnancy to get yeah, more bamboo and air conditioning, of all things. Pretty smart panda. Panda munchies. In any case, there are no particular take-homes or health messages from this story. It's just This is just a headline you and I both saw, and we were cracking up when we saw it, so we had to include it. You're saying she was just pandering <laughs> <laughs> to the zookeepers? Did you come up with that? <laughs> That's not bad. That wasn't original. What? Yeah. I think that the part about the story that grabbed my attention immediately was that they had to cancel an on-air event. Like this was going to be a TV live birth that they realized suddenly wasn't going to happen because the panda was faking it the whole time. <laughs> so we actually, Kendall and I just watched a movie recently that was not so different from this. Uh, yeah, it's Oscar seasons. So we've been watching like films that are nominated, but sometimes you run out of those. So there's just nothing that catches your attention. And in this scrolling, I guess, you know, like Amazon is listening to our conversations. Uh, and so the movie with an older movie with Lindsay Lohan called Labor Pains popped up. And the premise is basically that Lindsay Lohan fakes she's pregnant and her life just overnight becomes better. Like she gets a new job, she gets more pay, she gets uh, more attention at work, she's got a boyfriend. I'm not going to give away the movie in case anybody wants to watch it. It actually, I don't know, as far as like, you know, way to pass an hour and a half, it wasn't the worst. But yeah, it had me thinking about this and I, I don't know, like most people would, I think, assume that pregnancy comes with so many sacrifices, which definitely it does. But there are, I don't know, there, there, there are some more attentiveness uh, that, that can come by too that might have some appeal to some people. Some pregnancy perks are possible, I suppose. All right. So we have some listener questions. Let's get to these. First one we have refers to the dry January uh, that I think we promoted a few different ways with different mixologists promoting mocktails and talking about the reasons that it's, it's not really just for pregnancy anymore. A lot of people are choosing this for sobriety or for health reasons, cutting back or going completely off alcohol for January or for longer periods of time. So the question was about that, and it was somebody who looks like they did a dry January, and they asked, did, does abstaining from alcohol improve sexual health for women? What, what do you think, Bruce? I am not aware of specific research that can quantify such things, but I think in general, it's pretty safe to assume that given alcohol's multiple effects on the body, not the least of which is to dehydrate us, that it might improve sensation and certainly energy levels. Are you aware of any more specific connection between alcohol, abstaining from alcohol and uh, orgasm or anything else particularly about sex? I just thought it was interesting that it was coming from the women's perspective, because I think for men, this has kind of long been known to be a thing. Like you you trade off one for the other. Even Shakespeare has a line about, uh, I think, wine increases the desire but decreases the performance. There's a lot of crass phrases out there. We don't need to cite them here. But yeah, I, I think for men, it's known to impair performance. I hadn't really thought about it on the female side, but 
Yeah, I did not find any studies, but definitely just based on biology. I think if nothing else, the lack of dehydration, so kind of just having your body's proper nourishment and hydration status would help and energy, interest. Yeah. So I, th- I think overall it very likely would improve sexual health. Good. And how about this question? I know we wanted to talk a little bit more about this after talking to Tamara in our last episode. Why lead in comparison to some of the other heavy metals is so damaging to health and can cause things like permanent brain damage? Do you want to say a little something about that? Well, I thought this was a really interesting question to get. If for nothing else to keep us in check with ourselves, like we just did a whatever, an hour episode on the health implications or health risks of lead. And a listener still very genuinely could ask like, but wait, what's really the problem? <laughs> like, like why, why does it create a health problem? I think we described a fair number of the consequences downstream, like cognitive disorders, learning impairment, behavioral disorders. But the why is an interesting question. The exact like how heavy metals and lead in particular are damaging can be traced. Effectively, it interferes with other essential vitamins and minerals that are used as cofactors for any number of the hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions your body does. So things like calcium, iron, these are cofactors that your body needs to do all of the functions that it does. Lead goes in and replaces those without the same biological activity. And so whatever it is your body is trying to do gets impaired. But in another sense, the why lead is damaging could be traced to humans interaction with it in that we really haven't been around lead for, for that long. You know, certainly our physiology was never exposed to it in its in its origins. And you, you can find examples of human activity involving things that have lead going back to like 5000 BC, so a while ago. But it really wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that we started having heavy amounts of lead around our, our systems all the time. And so there is kind of a deeper answer as to why lead is damaging that can kind of boil down to we weren't really supposed to be around it that much. It's, it's a foreign substance to us. And some foreign substances are okay and not that damaging, but this one happens to be pretty poisoning. So it sounds like what you're saying is that some of these other heavy metals and elements are things that we evolved with and body processes evolved to include them to a certain degree uh, in very positive ways for cellular function, ultimately for our health. But lead was not in that category, and so it, it displaces those and wreaks havoc because of that. Yeah, I, I just think it's something that we um, maybe talk about implicitly a lot, but not explicitly, which is th- there are so many benefits from the industrialized living that we have now. And I wouldn't try to diminish any of those. I love this air conditioning room that I'm sitting in. I love the lights, electricity. I, li- I love all the better living through science that we have. But those largely have come on the wave of several industrial revolutions that have exposed us to chemicals and minerals and things like heavy metals that we never would have been in touch with before. And so we have to expect there's going to be some trade-off to that, some cost. And so wherever we can you know, still take advantage of these great gains for science, but, still, but then protect ourselves from the messy side effects, we, we kind of need to learn how to do both at the same time. Good. Great questions. And let's talk a little bit about uh, our upcoming interview and why we're speaking to somebody who's an expert in, in integrative medicine. 
Well, first of all, what does that mean? The National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, I'll just paraphrase, essentially says this brings conventional and complementary approaches in a coordinated way, combining conventional treatments we're familiar with, like medications or rehab, rehabilitation or psychotherapy, and so-called complementary health approaches like acupuncture or yoga or probiotics in various combinations. But the key point is that it emphasizes treating the whole person rather than simply a single organ system or a single organ. Uh, integrative medicine is far from new. Many treatments, many of these so-called complementary treatments go back hundreds or thousands of years, and it's extremely popular. A recent study told us that nearly 40% of Americans use these kinds of approaches, including supplements. Many people are drawn to an integrative approach because of wanting more natural treatments. They want more time or connection with their healthcare providers, or they might want help with persistent symptoms that are unrelieved by visiting their regular doctor, especially things like pain relief or infertility or cancer. And we're going to speak to Dr. DeMello, who you'll hear from in just a few moments. He's a licensed psychotherapist as well as an MD. His board certification is in integrative medicine, and he has a unique, what he considers a healing sanctuary with lots of other uh, modalities and health professionals working with him and genuinely believes they provide better results. So with that being said, we're looking very much forward to hearing from Dr. DeMello and learning more about integrative approaches to healthcare. Stay tuned. We are so happy to be able to sit down and chat a little bit with Dr. Edison DeMello. He practiced psychotherapy for 13 years and then became a physician getting board certified in integrative medicine after family medicine residency at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. Dr. DeMello founded and runs the Akasha Center for Integrative Medicine in Santa Monica and is the author of Bloated, How to Reclaim Your Gut Health Without Pain. Dr. DeMello, Edison, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Yeah, Edison, to the BEM. To Dubai. So, yeah, Portuguese is in the house, eh? We have some, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get to spend some time in, in Brazil and in Portugal, uh, where they have one of, I think, the best phrases in the world, that, that to Dubai. Uh, how, how would you explain what that means to somebody? It's all is well. That's what it means, right? Uh, and it's a, it's a term that it's really endearing to uh, those of us who speak the language, because it's, it encompasses everything, your mind, your body, your spirit, your belly, your life in general. So it's all as well, nothing to worry about. You know, that's what he means. It's one of those multi-use uh, expressions. It can also be a form of question, right? You can say to the bem as though you're asking someone how they're doing. Exactly. So in, in, in English, you say, is everything all right? Uh, how is everything? Right? <laughs> and it's the same thing. So you can say... You know, if somebody asks you, como vai, como está, so how are you? You say, tudo bem, all is well, all is fine. And then you can also say, está tudo bem, so is everything all right? How is life, basically? Yeah, it felt a little bit like when you're in Italy and you hear everybody saying, allora, for like everything, like allora, allora, it just can mean, you know, when is lunch and get out of my way is allora. But <laughs> but tudo bem had more of that, yeah, just kind of feel good, hakuna matata almost kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah. Somebody said recently that in French, I speak a little French, somebody also says that bonjour is an equivalent to the bank. So you say bonjour to basically everything, right? 
So, on bonjourney. So, I think the romance language is called, they're called romance languages for a reason, right? Well, speaking of that combination of uh, French culture and things that are very popular in Brazil, we just had Mardi Gras uh, last last week. Uh, do you celebrate Mardi Gras at all? Well, as a kid, we did. My family was really into celebrating. My mother was a big dancer. My uncle, um, who actually helped raise me, was an incredible musician. His wife was a singer. You know, that generation is all gone. And so those of us, the second generation to them, are still celebrating some. I left the country, oh, I'd say 45 years ago. And so been back a couple of times during Carnival, during Mardi Gras. One year, I decided to parade down with, uh, you know, a couple of school samples. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. Well, uh, so next year, we'll be inviting you to our Mardi Gras party that we host here in Southern California. Please and do. And a bit of uh, kind of, you know, home uh, home comfort. I'm going to show you these these beads we have. Party comes to play with beads. <laughs> I know. Yay, that looks great on you, Nate. Hey, yeah. to the bim. Just be aware, just be aware that when I'm invited to a Monogor, a Monogor party, I may end up dancing on a table after half a glass of caipirinha. You never know. <laughs> We've got it documented. We're counting on it now. <laughs> Thank All you right. for the warning. That's... Really good to know. All right. Well, I'm glad we've started off on such a serious tone, but let's dive into some of the substance here because I know everybody is interested. Now we are in 2024. How would you define this integrative medicine? Not everybody knows what that is. Wow. It's it's one of my big biggest passions in life right now. Integrative medicine is in the forefront of uh, a better way to get better. And I think Western medicine has its incredible technological advances, and without it, we wouldn't be here, right? Penicillin saved the world, and that is nothing but uh, but uh, uh, Western medicine or traditional medicine. However, we have fallen short of really going beyond what's in front of us. You know, we haven't really looked under the hood, and I think integrative medicine just does do that. Right, it looks at mind, body, and spirit, and he asks the questions as to why the disease and why now. What's the connection? And we have a system that is a web system of our organs together. They inform us of how to live life in a healthy way. And I remember when I was in medical school. And I would go to a lecture on cardiology, for example, and I'm very visual in my learning. And it was so disconnected, cardiology, the way it was presented to us back then, was so disconnected from the rest of the body that I, would, I, I kept imagining a heart sitting on a desk, on a table, as if it existed away, existed away from everything else. And back then I saw, this is not working. This is never going to work. So integrative medicine looks at the connection between all of us. We are hormonal beings. So we look at a hormonal house. We are we are what we eat, correct? So good old Hippocrates said that at the beginning of modern medicine. So we looks at how we eat. We are what we think, right? What is the first thing that you think when you wake up in the morning? And what's the first thing that you think when you go to sleep? So integrative medicine, you know, once you go into that and looks at and look at your 
thinking pattern, your thinking behavior, and it brings in the best of two worlds. It brings in the traditional medical approach, which without it, we cannot function in medicine, right? Our x-rays, our other imaging studies, our array of incredible labs. So integrative medicine brings that in and also looks at the patient beyond their diseases, right? I like to say that at Akasha, one of my favorite taglines, and we have a few, is that we meet our patients before we meet their diseases. And I think that summarizes, if I may say I'm biased, beautifully the approach, the integrative medicine that Akasha uses. We want to draw in from the incredible richness of research, of drug um, you know, investments that we've made every day, right? We're discovering new labs, new medication. We want to draw all that in. And then also bring in the Eastern sciences. Do you know how to breathe? When you ask patients that, they look at me as if I, you know, I have a, <laughs> I have a like two heads or a little horn in my head. You know, do you know how to breathe? Asking that question: How many times do you take a deep breath? How many times do you do you know how to sit down and be connected to your body? How about eating? Do you take time to eat, or you? eating on the run, like so many of us do, you know, the so-called drive-through, right? And so that's integrative medicine. It's looking at who you are from all these perspectives, this perspective, and then integrating it all into a concise, palpable treatment plan that makes sense. You know, it's it's so interesting because I've talked a couple times in this podcast about this book that's very popular right now called Outlive and how he speaks of modern medicine as being very limited, as being exceptional in the ways that you pointed out, but also limited in terms of prevention because it doesn't look under the hood necessarily exactly. to detect problems prior to them, you know, before you become a full-on diabetic to catch an increasing hemoglobin A1C, a problem with blood sugar metabolism before it becomes officially classified as a disease. It's such an interesting story. And also when I think about integrative medicine and the mind-body connection, these all sound very kind of 21st century woo-woo things. But if you look at the history of both of those, they go back hundreds or even thousands of years. This is something that has permeated societies in various parts of the world all throughout time, but they've only recently become more visible in our society. I think you are riding a, uh, a, a rising wave, a, a trend. I certainly would think that you're very busy there. Yes, yeah. You know, the, 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 and thank you for bringing it up. One of the things that I do when I happen to do some grand rounds or have a resident in my office, it's often dismissified the fact that this is a new discipline, right? <laughs> oh, it's a new discipline. Dr. DeMello is in, you know, forefront of the new discipline. And, I, I'd like to think that I'm the forefront of something new, but I'm not. <laughs> it's it's the oldest type of medicine that has ever been practiced. And in fact, in some area corners of the world, it's still practiced. I remember when I lived in Brazil, we would have, um, you know, we had natural uh, nationalized medical system and the doctors and the nurses would come to the house when you're sick. And we'd sit down and my mother or my grandmother, whoever was at home at that time, would make them a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And 
the doctor is coming. Let's see, you know, increase the black beans and put water in the beans so he may want to stay for lunch. And so you develop a relationship with that person. That person got to know you, got to know what makes you who you are. And so when disease happen, happened or as disease was happening, she could connect the dots. She could say, oh, let's look at this headache. You're having the headache, but you also told me that, you know, you are not doing well at school or the, your subjects have been really beyond your comprehension at this point, or that you have to leave school early to go to work to make ends meet. So let's look at that and how does that contribute to your headache? What else is a headache in your life? Well, I, I like to hear about your story of medicine in Brazil. I got to work in a hospital there for about a month. And I could tell you every 30 minutes, somebody was coming by with uh, uh, mango juice or a fresh papaya or something that just made the rounds more enjoyable. I definitely had fewer headaches when I was on that, that uh, service in yeah. Brazil. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to come back to something you mentioned about, you know, this isn't really that new uh, because maybe people don't relate to that in terms of textbook medicine. But in some of the phrases that we use, I think it is kind of intuitively built in there. I like that you brought up cardiology. We have a phrase people use like, you know, follow your heart, which has a lot of exactly. deep meanings. But maybe our favorite one, especially related to your work and your your book on uh, bloated, would be trust your gut. So so what 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 does that mean to you? What what does it mean to trust your gut? Oh my goodness. Uh, do you have five hours, Nate? <laughs> we can go on. Yeah, we'll edit it down to like four and a half, but yeah. <laughs> All right, great, great. Well, let's start with language, right? Uh, being that I speak a couple of languages, I'm very, very interested in other languages. I always look at, look at the meaning of languages and what it really means um, that we say what we say. So in English, for example, the gastrointestinal system is intrinsically connected to our emotions, right? We say, what's your gut feeling? When we are encouraging somebody to look inside, to go to that place that only you know that it's there. So what's your gut feeling, right? It means intuition, it means the inner knowing. We also use the term, oh, when you hurt, somebody hurts you. That hurts so much, I feel like I was kicked in my stomach. So we equate pain with gastrointestinal symptoms, right? Um, we say things like, um, when you're anxious, you say like, oh, I feel like I have butterflies in my tummy. So that alone tells you that in this language, and maybe in other languages that, I'm, that I don't know, um, the GI system and emotions are very, very beautifully connected. So that sentence for me actually came from when I was doing a PhD program and uh, started to research people at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. Really difficult hospital at that time, seeing people f or seeing people from walks of life. Uh, and people would present with a lot of GI symptoms for which no cause could be identified. So I was very interested in those patients. And it, so it turned out that a lot of them had history of abuse, had history of you know severe trauma in their lives, of violence, right? Oakland at that time was really violent, and specifically where the hospital was located. And so I started to look into that and say, what's in 
this. So long story short, I wrote a dissertation called Gut Feelings, right? Psychosocial Factors in Gastrointestinal Disease. And that opened the door for my continued work in combining the mind with the body, connecting mind, body, and spirit in what sometimes I refer in my book as the three amigos, right? <laughs> you connect your mind, your body, and spirit, and they together have this incredible way of really bringing us to the present. And even when we don't want to look at the present because it's scary, who wants to be dealing with diagnosis of cancer or a diagnosis of you must have surgery or open heart surgery? Nobody wants to do that. So fear kicks in. And when fear kicks in, we want to pretend that this is not happening, which of course it makes things more difficult, more challenging. The gut is where I come in and I ask people to look inside. And sometimes I will have them put their hands in on their belly, literally, in my office and say, no, let's just stop for a second, you know, and I want you to close your eyes. This is gonna sound a little weird, but go with me. I'm Brazilian, so it's gonna sound a little <laughs> weird. Right? Just close your eyes and put your hand in your belly here and ask yourself the question. What's holding me back? What is my fear about the surgery? What do I think? What is my biggest fear? And once you verbalize that fear, it's almost like, you know, when we get upset and, or we're sad and we cannot cry and suddenly a big cry comes out and you feel like, oh my God, I feel a little better. The problem is still there. The problem hasn't changed, but you have. Your perception of the, of the problem changes because now you are less stressed or emotions have been a bit more addressed. So the gut for me is the seed of the soul, right? It's where it's for those of us who believe in evolution, perhaps it's one of the most primal organs that there is. We all have a living entity has to eat and excrete. And when you excrete, you have a lot of stuff in your gut that needs to come out, right? A lot of poop there literally figuratively and sometimes emotionally getting it out of you yeah and if somebody's not telling you the truth they might be full of crap <laughs> <laughs> i didn't want to say nate but you said like, i cleaned up that it could have been a different version of it uh, so to, to get into that a little bit more I, there was a, a tina fey sketch on snl i think not that long ago where she was talking about the biggest topics in women's health and one was being thankful that there was a yogurt that helped them poop better <laughs> that was her headline. Uh, and I think that was a reference to probiotics and all the kind of things that are out there with that. What, what would you tell somebody who's interested in probiotics, especially that there's, an, I think, a slightly newer uh, version out there that are spore-based? Yeah, it's spore-based. They they're making quite a, a splash, so to speak, in the field of gastrointestinal medicine. Look, I, I am a fan of, of uh, probiotics. We make a little probiotics ourselves at Akasha. But I think before you take, to, you take the probiotics, you need to ask your question, yourself the question, why am I constipated? Why am I not pooping? Why am I feeling nauseated after I eat? Because probiotics or any medication supplement is not the answer. The answer is for you to listen to what your body is trying to tell you, right? Again, 
I'm a little suspicious, right? Because of the psychology training, the medical training, but your body talks to you. It's called symptoms, right? And your job as the host of this body is to listen to the message and try to interpret. Let me give you an example. Because I teach some of this, I've developed a lot of uh, analogies to make people understand this better, right? For those of us who have cared for children, when a baby or an infant is crying, she's communicating with you. So your job as the caretaker is try to interpret that language and connect the dots. Is she hungry? Is she colicky? Is she, does she have estranged anxiety? Now let's go back to the body. There's a certain time in your life that you become the father or the mothers to your body, right? Because who puts the body to sleep, who feeds the body, who protects the body from being hit by a car. So you become the mother or the father to your body. And as such, the question is, are you listening to what it's telling you? Or are you putting a Band-Aid on the issue and pretend that it's going to go away? So for me, it's like, yeah, probiotic may be the best thing for somebody who's constipated or somebody who's having gastrointestinal system problems, but why? Why is the problem right now? And what has the person's medical community or medical team done to address the issue? Because I have people coming in, Nate, and saying, I'm taking probiotic, you know, spore-based probiotics not working. I took this probiotic, didn't work. I took that, it didn't work. It's not a probiotic that's not working. It's that we're not addressing the root cause of the problem. And, and it can be something rather fundamental, like you eat way too much processed food. or Exactly. You're, you're sitting on the couch all the time and not getting any physical activity. It can be something mm-hmm. obvious but something that we would rather ignore. And so you get into conversation with your gut. And I think if you ask the right questions, which I'm sure you help train your patients to do, uh, the answers are sometimes not all that mystical or complex, but they do require motivation and a willingness to change. So much of this is just absolutely fascinating. You've already said a bunch of things I wanted to comment on. You made me think when you talk about listening to your gut and talking about whether or not you know how to breathe. One of the lessons that I've learned over the years is belly breathing, which is this cyclical Mm -hmm. sort of meditation breathing. And it actually, uh, I have been able to demonstrate this. It really lowers my, uh, any kind of anxious feelings I have. And it also lowers my blood pressure. It's almost a way if you pay attention to your breathing that you can make your autonomic nervous system, the part that we supposedly have no control over, you can actually have control over that. So we have a lot more connection to our bodies maybe than we're typically aware of. We do. We, you know, when you think of the power of this, the human suit that we wear and its many components, it's unlimited. Even when it's diseased, again, here comes English again, right? The word disease, what part of you is not at ease, right? Even that, if you take a step back and say, well, I wonder if I can look into that. No, I'm not promoting to anyone, specifically our audience, that we just ignore the symptom itself or of themselves, the medication that you may need, the medical attention, and just meditate and learn how to breathe. That's not the way. That's not integrative medicine. Integrative medicine is utilizing all those things, they are available and so readily available for us. 
but also ask a few questions before you get there. And that same question that we asked before, why this disease and why now? And what is my, bri my body trying to communicate with me? And what part of me is not listening, right? I have three children and one of the kids, they're adults now when the kids were young and they were having issues at school right a couple of them did we had to go and talk to to the to the school teacher i mean to the teachers to the counselors the question is right not how we're going to fix the problem how are we going to make this particular child sit still but what is that child trying to tell us by not sitting still right you may not have the language to communicate with us, but we are the adults. We are the ones with the language to interpret that. It doesn't mean that the child is going to be given a free range to walk around jumping up and down. We're still going to have to tell him, sit down. You cannot do that. But now we have a different understanding of the reasons why. Well, that's your body, right? Why is the body doing this and doing it now? Speaking of trusting your gut and listening to what it says and, and literally feeling your belly, in some of our patients' cases, they'll be feeling butterflies because there's actually a baby in there making some some movements, and they'll yes. be feeling very real flutters. And questions that often come up in pregnancy relate to the the microbiome, not just in the gut, but in the vaginal canal, the vaginal microbiome. Yeah. And a lot of times this comes up in terms of the, the mode of delivery, like a vaginal birth versus a C-section. Do you have any experience with patients asking you about if it's important to be exposed to that that microbiota during the childbirth process or if there's some way to kind of accomplish the same goals afterwards the first say 100 days of life? Yeah, no, uh, another great question, Nate. We have a lot of people asking that question. You know, so the baby takes a second or the natural process of childbirth sex takes second second approach or second place, all those things. So with that, we're seeing the development of more allergies, right? For instance, allergies, we see more, more immune compromising disease in kids. We see more behavioral issues in kids. So a few years ago, I read an article, an Australian article that sat to investigate why American children were uh, more, were sicker than their Australian counterpart. And they looked at everything as they should have, right? All the different variables, you know, lifestyle. They looked at socioeconomic background. They looked at ethnicity. They looked at so many variables. And one thing that they looked at that proved to be positive is that Australian children were dirtier than American children. Australian kids played more barefoot in the yard. Australian kids played more with animals, with us, us being overly concerned that, oh, no, that dog is going to lick you, it's going to give you bacteria, whatever it is that we parents or caretakers worry. So that was it. That, that topped the list. And so I think what it is, and then you guys can speak to that even better than I can. And so the latest research, not latest, in the last 10 years has been for, people, for women giving birth vaginally Oh, or excuse me, giving birth for C-section, they are now taking the vaginal juice and the lathering on the children. Because as you come to the, the birth canal, that's your first connection with a system that is going to enhance your immune system by exposure, right? 
And so that's one of the things that, that is happening more and more. And I think that if women, pregnant women, want to have babies through C-section, either because of life circumstances or medical reasons, whatever the reason is, then we tell them to really try to enhance their own microbiome to see, to look at the research. I've said to a couple of women, you know, talk to your midwife or your doctor about doing this. And at first they said, what? <laughs> and then they kind of, when I send them the research, they are, they are a little bit more understanding. Because the microbiome, the vaginal microbiome, is one of the best things an infant can have as, as, they, as he or he comes through the vaginal canal. It's like in Portuguese, there's a saying that says, that which won't kill you will make you fatter. <laughs> in other words, will make, you, will make you healthier. And that is because when I was growing up in Brazil, you know, if a cook fell on the floor, okay, you'll go, okay, come on, clean up and eat it. Right, and it was the three or thirty seconds of the one or whatever forty second rules. So we've become very clean in modern life. We don't understand that we our system gets better, our immune system, our GI, our micro gets better when it's challenged. Yeah, I remember the first time I had a C section where the parents requested the seating. It was quite a quite a shock to the OR uh, to kind of do that that fluid transfer right there at birth, and it, it definitely I think the proponents of it were citing kind of the microbiota and as you mentioned allergies and immune status kind of later on in life. Unfortunately, what we encountered in our hospital, which kind of mapped nationally, was that there were a lot of undetected infections that could be there if if group based right. strep was not identified, uh, undiagnosed exactly. gonorrhea, chlamydia. And those being transferred to the newborn, and that was that was you know counterproductive. While the process or the the um, practice has not gone entirely, I think it's sort of lost its steam a little bit. But but I think the point is really well taken that that there are things that can be done in the first say 100, 180 day, days of life to yeah get the kid a little natural dirt and uh, roll them around exactly. in some grass and exactly. and exactly you know kind of get the same idea uh, without maybe doing it in that direct way at the moment of birth. You know, it's fascinating because I went through medical training in the early 80s and back then bacteria were all still bad. There was no such thing as good bacteria. Yeah. And we've gone through this revolution now where we realize that there's, what is it, seven pounds of bacteria in the gut alone? Yes. It's a huge number and they are really uh, in a very symbiotic relationship with us. We are totally dependent upon them and their health. And so that brings us to the next area, something that we are, the green docs were always interested in, and that is what other sort of environmental threats to women, to pregnancy, to your families that you care for, are you most focused on these days? And how is that going? Yeah. Well, it's going well. We, again, we are really very focused on on lifestyle at the clinic and educating people. We don't want to bring fear. And so the idea is to educate people, is to tell people, if you can eat this particular foods organic, let's tell, let me tell you why. Let's look at mercury, you know, uh, mercury in pregnancy, as you guys can teach me about it, or lead, arsenic is horrific for the development of, for a good gestation. So we look at mercury, we look at foods that are, has very high levels of mercury in the, in the fish. 
right? Is uh, we connect people with the in California with the uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium, right? Where they have a list of sustainabilities that you can or approaches that you can do to protect our ocean while we're enjoying our food. So I think it's about education. Yeah, you you brought up a, a famous example of the heavy metals in the seafood, which were bioaccumulating. And, uh, you know, it was one of our first examples of environmental health intersecting with women's and children's health uh, because the mercury in the seafood would cause seizure disorders and worse in children. So many people right now giving counseling to pregnant women about seafood, I notice don't know that history. They just don't talk about fish, but they don't always know yeah. that it's connected to that uh, industrialized waste that is in the fish. And for a long time, I did reference that aquarium up there, which was a great, it still has a great list. Although more recently I've gone toward Wikipedia that has a very, uh, just user-friendly yes, version, yeah. frankly, is, is pretty good. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so for, for, um, our OB patients, we have a lot to talk about there that we can give them some, I think, good direction on the intersection between diet and health. But how about, I mean, you mentioned we have an aging population as well. So for people who are, who are maybe, you know, in a different phase of life, what should they know about gut health and uh, skin care or gut health and anti-aging approaches? In terms of the size of an or our organs, you know, the skin obviously is the largest organ, right? It absorbs, it excretes. Uh, and so with this skin is essential. It envelops us, it protects us. It has this connection with basically most of our organs directly or indirectly. Then you get the gut, right? The gastrointestinal system in its totality, in its entirety, the gut is about 26 to 30 feet long. I mean, it's astounding to me how we can have 30 up to 30 feet of gut, of gastrointestinal um, connections in our inside our bodies. And so, you know, when you talk about skin health, you cannot talk about skin health and therefore aging, right? A lot of it is on the skin, how we look, is our skin sagging, uh, do we have, uh, you know, aging marks or aging spots in our bodies? You cannot talk about skin without talking about the gut. And again, as I, I mentioned to you guys before, I love an analogy, right? So when somebody comes in with rashes all over it, you know, they've gone to a few other doctors or dermatologists and, you know, they couldn't figure out. One of the questions that I ask is, oh, interesting. Let's take the history. Then I say, can you tell me, is that something itching to get out? <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that term that we use, where it's itching to get out. When you pose that, that question there in of itself, you, you give the patient this permission to explore other possibilities. It may be true or may not. There's, maybe there's nothing interesting to get out. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. The rash is just a rash. But what if there's something to it? And so I think that looking at aging requires, or an effective way of looking at age must require a complete assessment of your gastrointestinal system and your microbiome. Like Bruce said before, we are, what, seven pounds of bacteria? And it's an interesting saying, right? We, I wrote a, 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 a paper about 10 years ago, and I still sometimes recycle it because I loved uh, the title. It said, bacteria, friend or foe, right? 
Here we are spending billions of dollars a year on probiotics. You asked that question, a probiotic, and it's increasing billions worldwide. And we spend even a higher amount trying to kill bacteria, right? We are wiping our counters, especially post-COVID. We are wearing masks. We are using alcohol. We are doing everything to get rid of bacteria. And yeah, we're ingesting bacteria. <laughs> Sometimes the rash is and irrational. we need them. Sometimes irrational. <laughs> there you go. I like that. <laughs> That's a new one. I was going to say we suffer uh, quite significantly if we take some antibiotics for a sinus infection and wipe out the bacteria in our gut. Exactly. Exactly. So the idea is to look at what your microbiome is trying to tell us, and I cannot recommend anything better for anybody who is looking at overall health, including a way to age more graciously, than recommending very specialized stool tests. When you take a stool test that is good, and there's several ones in the market, not your regular hospital-based stool test, but the kits that you take home, that you collect, sometimes even for three days and you send it out, it gives you a printout of not only your commensal bacteria, the bacteria that's working with you, like it gives you this, you give me that, but it gives you a list of pathogenic bacteria, it gives you a list of digestive enzymes, it gives you inflammatory markers. And so then you can look at it and you say, wow, this is what I need to do for this system of mine to operate better. And it's no different than taking our car to a good me mechanic who's going to tell here, hey, Edison, you want this car to last in that 10 years? Here's what you need to do. Yeah. Now, in your experience, Edison, do people, can they take those results from a stool sample to any physician? Or is this typically where they find that they can? They can. They can. And, and as you know, you know, hyperregulation that's been with us well, for almost 20 years now uh, has, has really stipulated that we physicians are the custodians of labs. We no longer own a patient's lab. So all the patient has to do is give us three days and any records, any labs that we do, they have a right to it. In fact, at Akasha, we preempt the whole question by giving them a, a copy of the labs and they come in for follow-up. So they automatically do. Sorry, you're talking about stool samples and interpreting them. And from what I understand, that that understanding of what a healthy gut microbiome is is more individualized than we originally thought and more complicated. Do you feel like we're at a point where we can reliably interpret those test results in specific terms, or is it more kind of a broad generalization what you get back? I think we have evolved science to such a degree in terms of stool testing and looking at different bacteria and their relationship to our system that we can we can determine quite a lot that is scientifically based by looking at stool test and, and I think it really they you know gone are the days where you looked at your stool test to look for E. coli to see you know how many colonies colonies of E. coli a pregnant woman may have right or strep B those are still valid, especially in your field when it comes to pregnancy and in integrative medicine, looking at stool tests, having them map it out for you gives you such an indication what your body is putting out, what your body is telling you through 
what's in the stool. Okay, so we've talked about number two. Let's talk about number one, <laughs> because on the uh, GYN side of our field, th this is where I relate to the kind of uh, microbiome the most, because in terms of how it interacts with, say, risk for preterm labor, I don't know. My read of the data is that the, the, the results are still very, very indeterminate. They're, they're varied. But when it comes to things like chronic yeast infections, uh, yeast infections that don't respond to typical treatment, and even things like chronic urinary tract infections... I, I absolutely think that there is something with the microbiome that can get disrupted and that is very hard to correct. And it, it more, needs more than just, you know, repeated doses of medication. Would you, would you be able to recommend like a uh, holistic or a dietary treatment to conditions like this? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that the first thing that we do, which I'm sure is similar to what you do, is get a history of the frequency of those infections, right? Are they occasional? Do they proceed uh, or proceed intercourse, for example? What is, uh, are there any variables that determine the occurrence of a UTI? That's, I think, is the first step. And so the second step is to then to look at the pH, the vaginal pH, you know, what's happening there. And then which is connected, of course, with your gastrointestinal pH, with what you're eating. So look, we all love sugar. I haven't yet met one person in this planet that says, I don't like sugar. Some of us like sugar much more than others. And if you think you like sugar, imagine the bacteria. They like sugar three times more than you do, right? That's what they thrive on. And so I think that when a woman presents you with UTI, I think there are a lot of things for us to look at. Lifestyle is number one. If it precedes intercourse, we need to look at that as well, what's happening there. And sometimes even like, do you want to be with this person, right? Simple questions like that. I think there's also this question about how hydrated are you? Americans are historically now dehydrated. So having people lifestyle and UTI are, again, are intrinsically connected. So before we jump into this is a chronic problem that is going to require deeper investigation, Let's look at the, in medicine, as you guys remember, let's look at the, at, at the dogs, not at the zebras in this situation here, right? What are the dogs, what are the cats here, things that are more common, and take it from that. And I think diet uh, plays a huge part, so does cortisol. The cortisol that I'm talking about is a cortisol that it's like you got on that treadmill and you cannot get off. You are on that fight or flight response. The treadmill won't stop. And insulin, uh, cholesterol is anti, excuse me, cortisol is anti insulin, which means that your sugar is high in your system. And you see this cascade of symptoms of reasons why a particular woman it may be having more histories of UTI. And then when that all fails, right, we, then of course we're going to really enlisted the help of our great urologists there, great gynecologists that can try to help us shine a light on what's going on. There are so many topics that we could explore for days and days. I do have to ask, I was born at St. John's, probably very close by where your office is in Santa Monica. And I'm just imagining you are in an area with lots of people, shall we say, in the upper 
reaches of society and and probably more than a few celebrities. Is there any sort of a, of a story that comes to mind? <laughs> My world is very diversified. Yeah, we are very close to St. John's. I used to be an attending at St. John's. We still send our patients there. We see a lot of people in the film industry, but and I also sit on a few boards, um, including one of prison reform and one for reproductive rights, especially for underserved women. So I try to balance you know, my life, realizing that Santa Monica sometimes can be a little bubble and that the world, uh, specifically Los Angeles and the U.S., it, Santa Monica doesn't represent it. The person that comes to mind is somebody who wrote the foreword for my book, and I can say his name because he wrote the foreword and he's on my website. His name is Lee Daniel, and he's the producer and, and director, and Lee was became a dear patient after not really trusting a lot about integrative medicine when he came in and questioned me, you know, right and left about why this was going to be different. So at one point, then he he wrote that on the foreword where I looked at him after he was dismissing in his own way, you know, integrative medicine, he was feeling bloated and had gained significant weight and was having some issues with chronicity and a couple of things I needed to deal with. He was on the top of the world in his career and continued to be. And a friend of his said, you need to go see this doctor. So he came and, and said and was not very interested. And no matter what I did, Lee was not convinced. So I asked him, Mr. Daniels, with all due respect, why are you here? You don't seem to believe this. And that led to this incredible connection that we made to the point that he wrote the foreword in the book. And Lee went from really not feeling really connected with his body and his health to dropping about 40 pounds to getting trainers to really feeling that he has arrived he had arrived in the world as a filmmaker, as an artist, and now he was arriving as a housing individual. And all it took was for the brilliant man to be challenged and to ask questions like, do you want to get better? Because, you know, there's something called the placebo effect. And the placebo effect is so powerful that in this country and maybe all over the world, we know the power that the pharmaceutical industry has, the power and the resources, and yet a medication, no matter how much money they spend developing it, it's not gonna be approved or passed if it doesn't pass the placebo effect, right? If the pill designed to, to treat your blood pressure is no different than telling somebody who's drink, who is uh, drinking water with a little sugar that that medicate that that water has medication if there's no difference the drug doesn't get approved so if placebo is so important in deciding which drugs get approved why are we not using it enough in our practices giving the patients that that inch that says that end that says do you believe you can get better if you want to get to point A, you need to look in your directions. If you want to get better, look at the directions in your health. There's that old saying I love, the, that if you keep going in the direction you're headed, you're liable to wind up where you're going. <laughs> so That's uh, true. That's true. I forgot about that one. You're right. We mentioned placebo typically in a negative context. 
or, or something to be overcome. You know, oh, that's just placebo. Don't worry about it. But spinning it to a positive has uh, sounds like a lot of power in that. So if nothing else, we'll be using placebo in a positive way after this, I think. Well, I have a feeling that uh, I, I read about you and your special relationship you had with your Nana, your yeah. grandma, and yeah. how she healed in large part by the care and the attention that she focused on the people who knew she cared for them. And it sounds like with your probing questions and your very, very diverse and thorough education, you do a lot of healing where it is you are. And so it's really a privilege to talk to you and to share your work. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you. I feel really, feel really privileged and, uh, and honored that you, you spent this hour with me. It's quite an honor. Thank you. We'll say tudo bem. Yeah, obrigado, obrigado e tudo bem. <laughs> yeah, and then what they say also is a kiss in your heart. They say, as you appreciate somebody, they say a kiss in your heart, meaning um beijo no coração. And that's what my grandmother used to say. So there you go. Um, a kiss, um, um beijo no teu coração. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, guys, take care. Right. Thank you. Bye. Well, a very heartfelt obrigado to Edison DeMello and uh, his whole team at the Akasha Clinic. That was really an eye-opening interview for myself because I'll admit, on the one hand, every time he started a, a line of answering with, well, think about what's really going on in your life that's causing these problems, I thought, oh boy, here we go. Uh, this is going to go to some kind of, uh, I don't know, non-medical place. But he always brought it around to something that was very... Uh, evidence-based, but but also outside of the typical walls of medicine. And I think the part that stuck with me the most was uh, his final comments about the placebo effect. And uh, truly, you know, if if a patient doesn't think they can get better, what hope do you really have for for your treatment working? So I think there's a lot that that we all can take from that. And I certainly will be rethinking how I approach clinical counseling and even even policy writing uh, based on the uh, way we can take advantage of of the the power of positive thinking. So, Bruce, to wrap up, what are some fast takeaways from this episode? Well, we heard a lot about the microbiome, but some numbers that stick with me. First of all, if you took all the bacteria out of your intestine and put them on a scale, it's not a small amount. It might weigh as much as seven pounds. Actually, according to the American Museum of Natural History, not usually I would expect a, to be a knowledgeable source, tell us that 99% of the unique genes in our body are bacterial and not human. So they're more than just a, a couple of stragglers that we carry with us. They're a major part of, of us and, and how our bodies work. And the bottom line with the microbiome is if they're happy, we are much better off. So we learned that exercise and diet are two key ways to make our microbiomes and us a lot happier and healthier. How would you like to be an intern on that study? <laughs> learning how many pounds of microbiome. Okay, fast fact number two. Spore-based probiotics, which are a little bit different than other probiotics, have been found in clinical studies to reduce triglycerides by 24% and to reduce something called endotoxin by 42%. Endotoxin is typically one of the things involved in leaky gut, and leaky gut uh, is basically kind of a consequence of inflammatory bowel and it can lead to things like autoimmune conditions and even damaged skin. So preventing that can help improve skin health. Do be careful because 
these spore-based probiotics have really not been studied rigorously, uh, even though studies like this do suggest some benefit. And the spores are more dormant or long-lasting form of the organism that tend to stick around longer. That's part of their presumed benefit. So if you have immunocompromised conditions, you may not want to use these as much because they have been found to get into bloodstream in some cases. And fast fact number three, getting kids on a healthy diet, we know is really important for their health, both as kids and long-term. And finally, this episode gives us a way to do this with a carrot, literally, and not a stick. If you introduce healthy veggies around six months of age, and you only have to do it five times, more is even better, it will be much easier to get kids to eat things that are good for them than fighting them tooth and nail at two years and three years and beyond. So it's a way to really help them long-term at an early age. All right. Are you ready for a mocktail? Why not? And how about something inspired by our Brazilian guest, a virgin Carparina? Yeah? Yeah. Something about that sounds very uh, counterintuitive or, or unnatural. Uh, but yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. It brings back a lot of good memories from uh, time in Brazil and all the time since that trip, just enjoying Caperinhas, typically in kind of some exotic or relaxing setting. Uh, here we have the zero proof version of it. What, what did you do to make this? Did you did you do the real the real deal? Did you muddle limes with cane sugar? I muddled limes with cane sugar. I didn't have any orange bitters, so I used a little bit of orange peel, and I had to put my elbow into it pretty firmly in order to get because I guess you want to get not just the juice out of the lime, but also some of the rind. You want some of those other more subtle flavors to become part of this drink. And then I mixed it with a couple of our favorite uh, alcohol substitutes that are recommended, the Liars White Cane Spirit in place of rum, and Seedlip Garden, uh, Seedlip Garden number 108, which is a botanical that's supposed to add a few extra dimensions. So I'm very eager to try this. Yeah, I did the same thing. This, this one did really have me tempted to reach for the cachaça, the Brazilian rum instead, but I did not. I want the, the recipe. And uh, yeah, use the the seed lip. I also use a little bit of mint simple syrup. Yeah, this at least looks like like what I'm familiar with. All right, Bruce, to the bim. To the bim. By the way, look, I got my lime wheel act together now. Pretty nice. Yours very professional looking. As yeah, as our past mixologist would say, that's an elevated serve. You also made a point of uh, saying that you had a lot of pleasant memories. I have one particular memory that really stands out with the Kuiperinha. I went on a surf trip to Baja many years ago with some of my doctor buddies who also love getting in the water. And at night when you're in a on a surf trip, there's not a whole lot else to do after the sun goes down. And we played cards. And I remember Howard, one of my buddies, made us all this drink I'd never heard of called the Kuiperinha. And the second one really hit me and I wasn't expecting it. And I remember because it was right in the middle of playing a hand of poker and it was my turn to bet. And I just went into some kind of a very pleasant stupor semi-coma state, which I think I remained <laughs> motionless for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and they couldn't get me to bet or do anything, but I was just very happy sitting there. So it's a happy memory. I think I lost the hand, but I fell in love with Kuiperinias. All right. So how do you explain if you just like go in that same stupor right now? Because you can't blame the cachaça this time. <laughs> <laughs> and it ain't happening. I'm right here with you. Be a strong, uh, 
Strong seed lip. Uh, some health benefits do come along with this. So the the key ingredient in a caverinia is is the lime, and like Bruce said, you really got to kind of muddle muddle the heck out of it. That will get you some vitamin C and some natural antioxidants. But a, a little known fact about the the vitamin C is that in addition to some of the health benefits you've probably heard of, it helps you absorb iron. Iron's a really important nutrient. It's uh, especially important during pregnancy when you're building a lot of red blood cells. You need the iron to let your body do that. Yeah, the lime will give you some benefit there. And no scurvy. From the seed lip, that there's, these are flavors in the seed lip, so it's uh, you can kind of use these herbs as much as you want to. The mint would have some natural anti-nausea, which is often beneficial in pregnancy. The um, rosemary, one important note on rosemary is that while it's fine if it's like in cooking and as an ingredient uh, to use during pregnancy, it's even been shown to improve mood in some studies, it should not be taken as a supplement. So don't like take any rosemary pills. Well, this is yet another mocktail that we've made that I would happily drink even if, even when I'm not pregnant. It's a very pleasant and uh, interesting and it tastes much better than a typical non-alcoholic soda or something like that. Yeah, I'd agree. This is this is pretty good. And just one final note about the seed lip herbal flavors. Thyme is also in there and relevant to Dr. DeMello's kind of core area of interest. Thyme as an herb has been shown to reduce bloating. So you can trust your gut on that one. You can also trust your gut every other Thursday by tuning into a new episode of The Green Docs. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or anything you get your listing content or come by our website, greendocspodcast.com. Check our show notes. We include the mocktail recipes and all the links for the things we talk about so you can fact check us. Send us comments and questions. We are getting more of those each time. And join our growing email list. We promise there is an email coming for the latest Green Docs news and special offers. This episode of Green Docs was joyfully created by Bruce Picard and Nate DiNicola and produced by Podcast 411. A special thanks to Dr. Edison DeMello at the Akasha Center. Check out our website, greendocspodcast.com. And if you like our podcast and you want to help us grow, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever it is you stream. It only takes a few seconds, but it really helps us out. We have a goal to reach 100 reviews by the end of this month, and check us out every other Thursday for a new episode of Green Dogs. Thanks for being here. Doodle Bam. Doodle Bam.